Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. This is Alex, and this is our Wednesday show where we sit down with a guest, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, we are talking to Tomasz Tunguz, founder of Theory Ventures, a $235 million early-stage venture capital fund. It's new, and you may know him from his time at Redpoint. Tomasz, hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. And like normally when we have guests on, I have precisely and exactly no fanboy energy to myself, but I have been a reader of your blog for long enough that I was legitimately like, ooh, he's coming on the show. (laughs) So thank you for making this a really (laughs) weird one on my end. (laughs) No, I've I've read incalculable numbers of articles that you've written and all the stories you've broken. So thank you. Well, that's because you and I suffer from the same issue of having too many stupid little thoughts to put out on the internet. <laughs> but you do a lot more than blog. Of course, you've been a VC since 2008, 14 years at Redpoint, worked at Google and Appian before that, and wrote a book, which actually I didn't get a chance to read, but you wrote Winning with Data, which now feels very topical given all the AI stuff going around the world. I had the pleasure of writing it with uh, the CEO of Looker, Frank Bien, and uh, we wrote about a lot of the data trends. It was, it's a totally different thing to write a book than it is to write a blog. Yes, because it's about, what, 15,000 times as hard, give or take? (laughs) Exactly. But it was a wonderful adventure. But the data thing stands out to me because looking at places you've held board seats in your venture career, you know, Looker, Chorus AI, also Monte Carlo, a company that I quite like, they're in the data observability space. And so I'm kind of curious, when you were doing the book back in the day, because it was some time ago, did you foresee at the time the eventual emergence of the data obs category? I didn't. We didn't see it then. We were much more focused just on making sure that the data was going from the places it was produced to actually being consumed. And I met Barr a while ago and we got to talking and we started researching the category and discovered that it had actually existed in the late 90s. I actually ended up buying. It was called a different data quality is what it was called in that era. And there was a whole series of companies back in that time that were all acquired. And for 18 years, the space went dormant. Huh. And so I found a VP of data at Citi who told me about this previous era of data quality. And one thing led to another. And now fortunate enough to work with Barr and the whole team at Monte Carlo. Yeah, Barr Moses is, is her full name if you want to look her up. It's interesting, though, because if you go back under 10, 15 years, people were talking about big data. And then it felt like all we really got was a bunch of stuff in a bucket. And then we talked about like using the data intelligently. And then we got to data lake houses. And now we're into the generative AI space. But it's still the same fundamental concept of you have to hold on to all your bits. And then the question is just, how do you use them? It's fun to see how many cycles of tech we've gotten off of one core concept. I'm curious what comes next. Oh, well, I think this large language model stuff is pretty awesome. I think we're at a place where we've been playing around a lot with it internally, where it's still really early. And it demos beautifully. But I mean, I'll give you an example. Two nights ago, so I really love dictation. A lot of the blog posts that I write are actually dictated. Yeah. And I've been playing around with Llama. So now what I do is in my email client, I will dictate a response to the email, send the email into the Llama LLM and have it respond. And there's a couple of different dynamics. The first is the dictation has a little bit of error. And then the large language model has a little bit of error. So sometimes you get these crazy responses. The other thing is sometimes it's really formal. It's like, dear Mr. Wilhelm, very best regards. And then you tell it to be casual and it's like an SMS text message. So it's really difficult to kind of get it to do exactly what you want. And then the last part is a lot of times a friend of ours will forward us deals or forward us startup investment opportunities. And then the founder moves the person who introduced to BCC. And so I asked the system to respond and it responded in the voice of the person who introduced me, not in my voice. It said like, yeah. And so I still think we're at a place where there's a lot of work to do and data will be a huge part of that. 
Oh, no, for sure. I'm also very glad that you are a dictator because I do most of my text messages on my iPhone through Siri. And my friends find this to be whimsical because there's always, like you said, a little bit of a translation error. And I'm like, you don't understand. I got back to you in less than two weeks. (laughs) I should get a gold star. (laughs) Don't complain that I used the wrong there. You know? (laughs) Totally. All right. I want to talk about theory ventures though, because I knew you as like, and I say this politely, like Mr. Redpoint, like the color scheme on your blog was red, you know, like you've always been synonymous with that brand to me and you decided to go off on your own and you didn't do it when I felt like everyone else did back in like 2021. So theory ventures, why was it the right time to spread off and go off on your own? It was a really good time for me. I had a wonderful time at Redpoint, made some great friends and had a lot of fun building that business together. And I decided that it was time to start. After 14 years in a firm, you either decide, I'll spend the rest of my life here, start on a new adventure. I'd been with Redpoint for 80% of my working career. Ah, yeah. That's a really long time, even though it was wonderful. And I thought that the, you know, the venture capital ecosystem had changed quite a bit. And given everything that I learned there and from other people wanted to try a different approach to the market, which is building a highly concentrated portfolio that's driven by thesis work. So we'll get to the thesis bit in a minute, but tell me more about concentrated fund. Does that mean fewer investments, higher percentage of each fund's capital invested in them? Yes, exactly right. Our goal is to have somewhere between 12 to 15 core positions, which is highly concentrated for an early stage venture firm. And the idea there was to use portfolio math. So we were using Monte Carlo simulations in order to determine optimal portfolio construction. And there are different strategies that will work. This is the one that we decided would work best for the style of investing that we want to pursue. And you can think about it as like in the public markets, like vanguards build indices where they buy the entire market and they offer a financial product that looks like that to investors and also to companies. And then there are other investors who focus on a really small, narrow niche and try Mm -hmm. to generate alpha returns that way. And we're that second category, but in venture capital. So the smaller fun thing made me think because you guys raised 230, 235, whatever it was. And just for context, the last Redpoint fund was 650. So, you know, a smaller fund was still large for a new firm, I would say. But deal sizes have been changing. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, is 12 deals actually not that many for the fund size, given how it seems rounds are getting smaller? So we ran the data on seeds and the median seed size and median seed post in the U.S. for software companies has never decreased since 2010. Yeah. So when I joined in 2008, like one of the first investments, I was fortunate to partner with the Expensify team. I think we invested four for 20% of that company and that was an A. (laughs) And uh, today, (laughs) today you would call that a seed or a pre-seed, you know, and then the B, the series B in 2008 was six to eight million at 40 to 50 pre a really expensive. That was a seed round now, but that was an expensive series B at the time. Yeah, that's right. So given the changes in VC that we've seen, is it harder as a firm to generate the sort of returns on an IRR basis to make venture math worthwhile for LPs? Because it feels like the returns have gotten a little bit less as companies have gotten more expensive, but there's also more LP capital seemingly available given the number of billion dollar funds. So to me, it feels like it's going in reverse from what I would expect, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the biggest driver of venture capital returns in the last 10 years has been the impact of the zero interest rate policy by the Fed, which has increased the valuation multiples, and it's created a super vibrant exit market. And that stopped all of a sudden, basically a year ago. So now in order to sell a company, it's really tough because antitrust, it's been hard to go public. There were no SaaS IPOs in 2022. We just saw a 
I know. It was so <laughs> yeah. boring. So boring. I mean, Clavio went out. It held the IPO price, which is fantastic. And so that suggests that maybe the IPO window is open, particularly for businesses that are profitable and generating cash and have beautiful unit economics. So maybe it's changing. Well, I think Clavio is like, we're going to go out now because we can, because every element of our business looks great. Amazing. Like, <laughs> that was such a clean S1. It's it's rare when I finish like reading through one and I have my notes and like the con column is like empty. I'm like, oh, okay, everything just looks pretty good. Well done. All right, fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Um, we're going to get back to that when we talk about software companies in a minute. But I want to talk about the thesis because you had three bits behind theory. Decade of data. We already talked about that a little bit. Essentially, the importance of data in computing. Then you also have machine learning as a force multiplier. And I think about data in AI context, as we talked about earlier, and then we talked about ML here. And I was hoping you could explain to me the Theory Ventures viewpoint on what is ML and what is AI. (laughs) Okay, so the way we think about it is it's kind of all the same thing. It's using statistics in one form or another in order to get computers to do interesting things. There are four different kinds of machine learning. There's classification. Is this a dog or a cat? That's what Google uses. There's prediction. What is the weather tomorrow? And then there's natural language interpretation. processing. Yeah, interpretation, natural language processing, Siri. And then the last is generation, which is the wave that we're in with like ChatGPT that makes you believe that it's a person, right? Past the Turing test. Yeah. So we're in those four waves. What's happened is in the last 20 years, each of those waves has had their moment in the sun where there's been a breakthrough. And all of a sudden, the volumes of data are large enough and the computational power is big enough and people have developed the right algorithms to extract value from them. And at each wave, big companies are built as a result. And so now we're in that fourth one. What's the future fifth type of machine learning? Oh, I think what ends up happening is we combine these four different kinds in novel ways. I couldn't tell you that there's a fifth kind, or at least when I was in grad school, these were the four kinds and they've, I haven't seen a new <laughs> one since. So... It's hard to say that there would be, but I think that combinations of them would be unique. Yeah, so if you brought classification, prediction, interpretation, and generation together with a personal context, like if it had my data, that would be like the world's best digital assistant. We're so close to that. Like, did you see the Microsoft news? They're going to build like Microsoft Copilot for like all of Windows Mm -hmm. and it'll be like kind of like pan across your apps. Like I just, we're getting closer and closer to what I want, which is the ability to talk to my computer and have it do things for me. Siri is like, the Etch-A-Sketch version of this video game I'm describing. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, not great. But I, I, I just, it's t- it feels tantalizingly close, even though I'm sure I'm being overly optimistic. No, I totally agree with you. I saw the movie Her in 2012 or whenever it was that came out, and that's when I started to use dictation. And I think the brilliance of that movie, setting aside the romance, is the foresight and the human-computer interaction where we're not really looking at a screen all that often, maybe once or twice to look at an image, but we're having a conversation with a computer. And so that's taking the natural language processing and combining it with all those other kinds of machine learning in order to actually execute stuff. But in the case of Theory Ventures, I presume that when we're talking about ML and these four categories, we're mostly in a B2B context. I've never thought of you as as a B2C guy. No, I started in Ventures as a B2C guy, but that didn't last very long. And then pretty quickly, and since then, have been software and infrastructure B2B. Okay. Now, though, we get to the third part of the theory thesis. And this is where, honestly, I went, the fuck? Because <laughs> decentralized infrastructure as database. You say that blockchain techs invert data ownership by shifting control to the end user. And this will transform the relationship between users, assets, and businesses. Uh, utopian, positive. I like the direction of that. To me, though, having covered Bitcoin and its friends for over a decade now, it feels very much like the promise is not panned out. So I was curious why you think this is something you want to spend your time on now. Okay. What's the fastest growing database in the history in terms of revenue? Ah, 
Oh, in terms of revenue. Oh, shit. I was going to say the comment pages on Wikipedia articles. But <laughs> yeah. in terms of, uh, like, in this question, would like, all the data stored in AWS count as a revenue-generating database? It would. Well, then AWS. So AWS and Ethereum. Ethereum revenue, though, you're talking about gas fees, essentially. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Th- those are the dollars that you pay to store data, effectively. And Ethereum had the same growth rate as Mongo for the first five years. It generated something like 200 to 350 billion in revenue in a single year. Mm-hmm. And it went from burning 1.7 billion in cash flow to generating 250 million in cash in two quarters. And so set aside everything else you think about Web3 regulation, Operation Choke Point 2, on a purely financial perspective, that is one of the most special businesses that's been created in the last 10 years. I want to poke at that just a little bit. Poke. So the revenue side, Gas fees, fully understand, here for it. Then on the burning versus profit, I presume you're talking pre-post-merge? Pre-post-merge, that's right. Okay, and post-merge, Ethereum became, or Ether tokens became deflationary Mm -hmm. because they're burned. And that rate of burn is what you were referring to as the profit, I presume? That's right. So basically, how much does it actually appreciate? How much does the ETH token actually appreciate? It's the same as the share. I mean, the way we think about the ETH burning is it's like a share buyback when Apple authorizes 50 billion of share yeah. purchases. Yeah. And I wrote about Bitcoin in 2013 because I thought it sounded awesome. At the time, we were talking mostly about censorship resistance and kind of like uh, a form of money outside of traditional fiat rails. I don't dislike the idea of discussing this as a data transfer or storage system. But I mean, putting that into action, Filecoin hasn't killed off Dropbox yet or Box or other storage solutions. So I guess, should I expect the blockchain to have similar storage capabilities to other major data storage products? Or does this store different data in a different way that I should think about? I think you should think about ETH and Filecoin like the simple database service and S3 in 2009, where Amazon cut prices about 120 times in the first four years. And the price to save something on ETH was $50 two years ago. And today, if you use an L2, which is, a, I mean, effectively a layer on top, it's measured in the sense. And the next generation databases, you, you can now save stuff in Web3 databases for fractions of a penny. And so we're kind of riding this cost curve down just the way that we did. Okay. Filecoin, the amount of storage that's available, it's just it boggles the mind. The utilization is still quite low. And so where I think we are in the ecosystem is we've developed these really interesting decentralized and distributed systems. And initially, the cost of doing business with them prohibited people from actually building interesting applications. But the cost curves are coming down so fast that at some point it will be more economically viable actually to be building on these systems and you'll make those trade-offs. Yeah. I've been watching the growth of Base, which Mm -hmm. is the, I'm going to get this right, Coinbase-affiliated Optimism-based Ethereum L2. I think I got that right. Yeah, it's, I think it's, you nailed it. It's Coinbase, but it's not. It's built on Optimism Tech, but it's an own thing, and it is an ETH L2. Anyways, it's been explosive and growing very quickly. But to me, it, it feels much more like the ability to pass along smaller packets of data than I think about as like going into a database. And that's probably why like I feel like decentralizing data storage onto the blockchain is a cool way for certain use cases, but it doesn't feel as broad or as flexible or as generally applicable as existing online storage solutions. So am I thinking too small or am I being overly... You're right. Like the amount of data that you can store on a blockchain today is relatively small. It's like when you had a... I mean, whatever. My family bought a Mac 2 and it had 640 KB on the hard drive, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we thought, you know, people were coming out with these hard drives that were 
200 megs, what could we ever store with 200 megs and now our hard disks are two terabytes. And so it's just early in the development of these databases where they're slow, they store small amounts of data, and instead of storing all the data on the database, you store it like a link or a pointer to something else. That's what we're doing today. And over time, yeah. Yeah, eventually we... NFTs won't just be a pointer to a, a, an S3 bucket, right? Right. Okay, so then one last question about this, and then I want to talk about software and SaaS because that's what you and I have written the most about. L2s are amazing mm-hmm. because they allow for batch processing, much lower transaction fees. They're super quick. And honestly, there's a lot of them out there that are pretty cool. To get to the world you're describing for the future of blockchains, do we get there with L2s that we know today? Or do you think there's another, I mean, is there an L3 layer that we get to eventually that sits on top of the L2s? I think the existing L2s continue to improve performance. You can look at like what Arbitrum released where you can execute arbitrary compute on top of an L2. There'll be better and better optimistic risk scoring algorithms that will deploy. And so the efficiencies will drive. There'll also be new blockchains and performance characteristics. I mean, I think about it this way, like the whole database market in the world right now, setting aside Web3 is 100 billion. In five years, it'll be 200 billion. It grows at about 17% per year. If you, yeah, if you have, Whoa, a, if, right. yeah, if you have a company that gets 50 basis points, half a percent of that, you have a publicly traded company. And so that's why you have lots of different databases that are built for purpose, right? You have time series databases, graph databases, streaming databases, vector databases, vector databases. Each of those on their own could be a publicly traded company. And so, If you look at the world of Web3, you can say those are databases where the control of the data matters and you really want the end user to control their own data, whether it's because you want to comply with the German data locality reasons or you're dealing with like people's PII or you want a completely different SaaS architecture. There's a reason for that database to exist. And once it becomes economically viable and the performance is there, I think software applications and consumer applications will likely be hybrids where they're both using a snowflake and a SWE, or whatever it is, some combination of the two. I have about 60 minutes more questions about that, <laughs> but yeah. um, I, 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 we have to talk about SaaS because I have, I have lots of I want to talk about there. Okay. But I will say, this is the first conversation I've had about Web3 broadly in the last year that has made me go, okay, cool. And it feels good to regain a little bit of my optimism about a space where there are a lot of smart people trying really hard. But putting aside all things Web3, Web4, crypto, and blockchain, we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, all things SaaS and the state of the software economy. Okay, so SaaS. Mm -hmm. Way back in time, Fred Wilson wrote a blog post on his excellent AVC blog, one of the OGs who got a three-letter domain back in the day. And he was talking, this was like a post in like 2008 or 2009, somewhere in there. And he was talking about how SaaS companies, you know, should be valued at a discount when they're private because they're illiquid and how maybe 4X revenue or ARR for public SaaS and 3X for private made sense. And then the world changed. Zerp, as you pointed out earlier, everything went a little bit crazy for a while. And it seemed that the optimism that software companies had essentially unlimited growth prospects became gospel. And so everyone raised a lot of money, spent a lot of money, tried to go really quickly. Many companies did. Some companies struggled. It feels like the belief in how fast software companies can grow has changed since then. And so I'm curious about one, why did everyone decide that TAM was infinite for software companies? And then two, what changed that apart from a change in monetary policy? I would say the only thing that changed was the monetary policy. 
Damn it. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but you're right. Like multiples expanded, right? So software companies are valued, especially the high growth ones, on a multiple of forward revenue. So some of the next 12 months of revenue multiply it by a number, and that's the value of a company. And during that post that Fred wrote, it was four times. And then during the peak, Snowflake, I think, hit 78 times. And now the top quartile companies are about 14.5 last time I looked at it last week. Yep. And so the 15-year median is about 5.5 across these companies. And as a result of the changing interest rate policy, we're kind of closer to that 5.56 range than we've been in five or six years. That's where we are. So one way that I think about venture capital is that it's kind of a cheat code for business because you have more money than you would have if you were living off your cash flow. So you can do things you would have to wait to do now. You can just basically accelerate and skip time, which is cool. It's that's why venture capital is interesting. But if you're going to raise a lot of money and you're going to invest it in your business and you're getting a 5x multiple on, let's just say, net new ARR, does the math work out given how much money you have to spend to generate that ARR or at lower revenue multiples, does the kind of venture math behind SaaS get a little less clearly functional? No, the venture math still works. It just means you have to be careful of the prices you pay in the C and the A and the B. So it's just a valuation. So if a company that used to be worth $2 billion during the heyday is now worth, let's say, $750 million, you can't enter, you can't buy shares at the A and the B and the C at the prices that you would have, say, two years ago. But the venture model, it works, and it's still a viable way for founders to make a lot of money themselves and finance the company. There are many counterexamples. Atlassian was bootstrapped. I mean, Viva raised $4 million famously, and never spent a dollar of it. So there are definitely counterexamples to do it, but also many of the publicly traded software companies were venture-backed. So it's still completely viable. It's just prices have to adjust. And so going back to what we said earlier about how seed rounds aren't getting smaller, yeah. how, do, <laughs> how do we square that circle? Because I feel like what you're saying is we have to be not frugal per se, but intelligent with investment numbers at the earliest stages. And yet it doesn't seem to be the case. So who loses out there? Well, right now I'd say there's a kink in the market. So the seed and the A basically have, like the seed hasn't repriced at all. It just continues to go up 75th percentile valuation for a seed in the US is 25. <laughs> and then the A is probably down like 30 to 40% uh, yeah. roughly, except for AI slits at that. And then you have the, the B through the D market, which is pricing companies significantly lower than the A. And so there's this kink that exists right now. And so there's this tug of war. So if you are an optimist, you say the Fed is going to cut rates, multiples in the publics will expand, and then the growth investors will start to pay higher multiples for the businesses. Yeah. If you're a bear and you think Jamie Dimon is right and Fed funds are going to 7.5%, then you think, well, let's just hold our breaths and then the early part of the market will come down. And so this is where the market is today. And what is the theory ventures, venture theory here? Who's going to blink first? <laughs> The way that we think about it is ownership matters more in this environment than it ever has. And the reason we're building a concentrated fund is irrespective of the valuation environment, we're in a position to be able to buy meaningful ownership in these companies. So that if the multiples okay. do expand and we go back to the heydays, fantastic. And if they don't, we have a viable business still. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I mean, it's. I feel like after a period of time in which I was learning less, I am now once again learning more. And that to me is the best part of, of my job. And so like, I'm glad that I don't know what's going to happen because it means I have to pay attention and learn stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. The world is changing. I mean, we, we zerped for a long time. Yeah, it was a good run. It was a good it run. Was, man. <laughs> Everybody's happy when we're all making money, you know, and now- Everyone's we, happy yeah. when we're all making money. 
And now no one is happy <laughs> at all. There's almost like a, like a misery in the world right now about the state of the equity markets and so forth. But like the Nasdaq's up like 25% this year. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to see as many dark clouds, I think, as, as other people seem to say they see. I agree. I mean, just the base rate effect on earnings, everybody guided way down last year. And now I think earnings, are, they'll outperform. The economy is much stronger, even with a higher Fed funds rate. Yeah. The major thing that, you know, some of the late stage companies I work with are starting to see strength in Q3 and Q4 projections. And so there are lots of reasons to be optimistic. And I think as a venture capitalist or anybody in the startup ecosystem, we're all glass half full people. I think you have to be. Like, if, if you were a pessimistic VC, you would just sit on your cash <laughs> and, and collect Can your you 4%. Can you imagine a VC with a short strategy? <laughs> okay, don't, don't tempt me. Because actually, that'd be a great business. Because you should just short all the companies you pass on, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You can't borrow the shares to sell them, I don't think is the problem. Okay, so... Chamath, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite SPAC lord, was talking on his show, and this hit Twitter and it kind of hit my radar, about software companies maybe not being the best businesses because they raise a lot of money, spend a lot of money, and they don't end up profitable. And the trade-off to me, as I've always explained to other people, is, well, software companies are building highly durable recurring revenue with strong gross margins, and they're going to kick off cash eventually. Don't worry about it. That wasn't true for a while. It seemed in the 2021 era, when people were spending a lot more, now companies have pulled the cash lever and are often generating much more cash than they were before or started to. And I'm trying to figure out where we are on the profitability versus growth balance point today from your perspective and where we're going to be maybe middle of next year on the same question. Great question. Okay, so about 20% of publicly traded software companies are profitable. And that's one way of looking at them. The other way of looking at them is the amount of free cash flow that they produce. And the media, the average amount of free cash flow is about 12% of revenue. So I would argue that's actually pretty good business, particularly if you're growing 20 to 30%, spitting out 12% cash. Mm-hmm. The other dynamic around, like people often point to the lack of profitability within software companies. There's an accounting regulation called ASC 606, which has to do with the way that you count the costs associated with sales and marketing. And that changed. It changed in it 2019, 2021. And so the profitability of the, a lot of these businesses changed. So let's set aside that arcana of accounting. But the reality is like a lot of these businesses are actually very healthy and they're very healthy on a, on a unit basis. They're very healthy on an aggregate basis. And the growth rates, you'd be hard pressed to find a group of companies elsewhere in the world that are growing this fast with this level of predictability. Okay. So yes to all of that. But I do quibble a little bit with your 20 to 30% growth number because there's this man who you used to work with named Jamin Ball. Oh, yeah. I forget how to pronounce his first name. Yeah, that's right. Okay, thank God. Because yeah. I've talked to him before and I, if I butchered that, he would stop letting me use his charts. <laughs> and he he buckets public SaaS companies into three buckets, um, zero to 10% growth, 10 to 30 and 30 plus, I think. And a lot of companies that are public in the software space are in the lower two buckets. So I, I don't think as many are doing the 20 to 30% growth that I think makes your point clear and solid. And that's even with you know reasonable net retention. So it feels like some of these companies are, are not profitable and they're growing by the skin of their teeth, which to me doesn't feel that healthy and is a little bit less than I expected from them, just given what I've learned in the past. That makes sense. So I just calculated the average is 23% growth in the last 12 months. But, you know, there are a bunch of negatives, right? And so you're right. A bunch of these companies have suffered contraction. One of the predictions we made at the end of last year was that 10% of publicly traded software companies would be taken private by PE. We've seen some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, well, you look at Cisco Splunk is a, is a corporate take private, uh, New Relic, 
uh, Software AG, and then there's one other one. His name escapes me. When did Zendesk get taken out? Oh yeah, Zendesk. That's right. And then Mailchimp, and so. Oh yeah, Mailchimp. Yeah, yeah. So you've had quite a lot of activity, and I think I think the easy answer, and this may not be true in all cases, but the easy answer is a lot of those businesses grew up in a ZERP environment, and it's tough yeah. for management teams to suddenly change the cost structure. But being taken private by a PE or corporate gives you the ability. <laughs> Gives you the ability to change a lot of that execution, right? Because you yeah. don't have to report to the street and you don't have those kinds of responsibilities. And so this is yeah. the circle of life within the world of software investing. I, I just, I love the way you phrased that. Getting taken private by a private equity company gives you the chance. <laughs> I actually agree with you that the SaaS model is strong. I actually agree with you that software companies are going to be in good shape down the road. My guess is just that after enough time of cheap money, companies of all different shapes and sizes from you know pre-seed all the way through IPO and beyond forgot how to be scrappy and they need to learn that skill. And once they do, they'll discover that they can grow probably just about as fast and also kick off a lot of cash and make everyone happy. It was just weird to be reading about, is software a good business in venture circles? Because what's more venture than software, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, when I joined, it was 80 to 85% of the market. That's what we were investing in. Now it's a little yeah. bit less, but the market's grown from eight to 300 billion. So uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> other than that, what happened, you know? Yeah. Well, and like, here's the other way of thinking about it. There's one and a half trillion of global IT spend. About a third, 35% of that is moved to the cloud. Yeah, we think terminal penetration is another thirty percent. So there's another Salesforce and another Snowflake and another Zendesk and all to be built. Yeah, and if you want to learn about them, TechCrunch.com, everybody. Tomash, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, and we'll bring you back on in a year to talk more about the decentralized uh, database components. I want to see what we learn in the next year and if that amends, changes, or reinforces your perspective. Because I'm willing to be wrong, and if I am wrong, I want to be wrong early and learn quickly. So. We'll do that. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Alex. Now, before we let you go, where can folks find you on the internet? Oh, I'm at tomtungus.com. That's the best place to find. And what is the Theory Ventures website? The Theory Ventures is theory.ventures. Gotta love those new TLDs. (laughs) Awesome, guys. Equity, of course, is back on Friday. We are coming out Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We are Equity Pod on Twitter and Threads. And we'll see you then. Goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 